Today is our last week in this series that we have been doing on understanding worship. We've called it Worthy, and I just want to tell you thank you uh, for walking through these last uh, six weeks with me. I have learned a lot in my own study and preparation to, uh, to share these messages with you, and I know that many of you have shared things with me that the Lord's taught you, and, and that's the goal. That's, that's the goal. We always want uh, to grow in our time together studying his word, and, and I believe we've learned a lot. I want to take just a minute before we wrap up the series and just do a quick recap of some key principles and, and some notes, some of these things. If you've been with us through this whole series, these will all be familiar to you. If you've missed a few of them, then that's okay. That's sort of the benefit of doing this. And so um, I came up with seven big principles that we've sort of hit as we've gone through this series. And the first one, number one, was worship begins with God, not with us. Amen? Amen. Worship begins with the origin of God and that from the moment God created, he became a God who was worshiped uh, by his creation. And it starts with God. It does not start with us. We cannot make ourselves the center of worship. That's That's where we mess up so many times. Number two... Worship begins with God, but we were created to worship because God in his character demands and his nature demands that he be worshiped because he is the greatest. He is supreme. He is sovereign. He demands to be worshiped just by nature of who he is. And so he has created us as his people made in his image to reflect his glory. And to worship, we were created to worship. And we said that because you were wired and created to worship, you're going to worship something. If it's not God and it's not Jesus, it will be something else. You will worship men. You will worship money. You will worship material. But you will worship something because God made you to worship. So we have to worship the one for whom and by whom we were made to worship. Number three, worship is an active experience, not an attended event. It's participatory. It's not a ball game. Church isn't a ball game where you come and take your seat and you watch everybody else do it, and then you take credit for it, right? Like we said before in the ball game, when I go to the Braves game and I leave talking about how well we played, I didn't do anything, I sat in the stands and I wore the hat and I wore the jersey like I'm a player, but I'm really not because I'm just sitting, watching, and doing nothing. Worship is active. It's it's an experience. It's something that we participate in and do. Number four, part of that participation in worship is sacrifice, that worship is sacrificial. There's an element of sacrifice that comes into this idea of worship that, that began all the way back in the Old Testament. But we, we give. We come bringing something of ours sacrificially to give to God. Number five, worship transcends circumstances. This is the story of Paul and Silas in Acts 16 that we've been talking about lately. We can't allow or we should strive not to allow our, our life circumstances, whatever situations are going on in our lives, or even things as small as preference and aesthetics to, quote, hinder us from worship. The times that I have heard 
myself and other people say this or that has hindered my worship just reinforces the fact that if I allow something as small as, as my preference or even something as big as the circumstance that I go through then I, to hinder my worship, then my worship is focused on the wrong thing. And we also talked about how the, the way that Paul and Silas was able, the way they were able to do that was because they didn't see God through the, through the filter of their circumstances. They, they flipped it and they saw their circumstances through the filter of truth that they knew about God. And so that's what we have to train ourselves to do is to come in and, and, and create and have moments of worship where we say, God, I'm going to choose to see you first and then let what I know is true about you that never changes dictate the way that I see my circumstances around me. And that's why you can worship in the middle of a thunderstorm. That's why you can worship in the middle of the greatest storm of your life. Because the storm comes and goes, but God never changes. All right? So, good, y'all are with me. Number six, God responds to our praise with his presence. How are you glad for that? We don't worship, we don't come into worship with the idea that we're coming to get something. We don't, we don't our, our, our initial response to God is not, I'm going to worship you, God, because I need stuff. I need you to do something, so I'm going to praise you so that you will do something. That's the wrong attitude. But when we come with the right attitude and right heart to worship God for who he is and what he's already done, the promise is that he does respond. He inhabits the praises of his people. He's enthroned on the praises of his people. So when we worship him and praise his name, he responds, and he responds with our presence. And when the presence of God shows up, anything can happen. Anything that he wants to do. It's not, it's not always that, oh, God, I've got this checklist here, and I need you to come so you can do these things. It's like, God, you just show up with your presence, and you do whatever you want to do, because I know it's going to be glorious. And it's going to be even better than anything I have thought of or imagined that I want you to do. What you've willed to do is even better. Inviting his presence with our praises. And then number seven, right worship will spotlight the gospel. If we are singing about how good and how great God is and we aren't talking about the gospel, then we're missing it. The, the, the right worship of God will spotlight the gospel. Every, everything that God instituted and set up in his word, every instruction he gave his people for how to worship and what to do in worship, all of it ultimately came back to Jesus. It, it was supposed to be a reflection of Jesus, a picture of what Jesus would come to do, and all of our worship is reflective of what Jesus has already done. That's big stuff. And I hope that some of these things have changed your perspective. I hope that maybe some patterns or habits that you may have developed over the years when you think about worship in general or when you think about coming to church and how you worship when you're at church, I hope that some of these things are beginning to make your brain and your heart intentionally say, I need to be doing things different. That's my prayer. 
because I know it's happened in me. I want to end this series with, with just a couple of verses that we find in the book of Colossians. So find Colossians chapter 3. These are also familiar verses, but I want us to really look at them and, and talk about them a little bit in depth this morning. The book of Colossians, like many of Paul's letters, begins by giving a doctrinal instruction and then he follows it with a practical instruction. Many of Paul's letters to the church were, were formed this way. When you look at them, they begin with him informing and solidifying right doctrine. This is what is true. This is what you are to believe as followers of Jesus. And then later on, the second half of his letter will say, let's take this truth that we've established as, as our standard. How should it affect the way you live? Doctrinal instruction and then practical instruction. So in the book of Colossians, if, you, if I could sum up the doctrinal instruction of the book of Colossians, it is that Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. That there is nothing lacking in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. He is the creator. He is the savior. And he is the head of the church. There is nothing lacking in the person of Jesus and so because of this, so well, what's the practical application of that doctrine? It's that Jesus has first place in everything. Because he is everything, he has first place in everything. And so in our lives, there should be a pattern of Jesus taking first place in everything. How do we as believers begin to put Jesus first place in everything so that it it becomes evident, not just to each other, but to the world around us. Chapter 3 is part of that practical half of the letter that Paul is writing. And he's given instructions about the Christian life. How do, we, how do we make sure Jesus is first in everything? And then verses 16 and 17 is what I want us to look at. Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17 says, Let the word of Christ... Dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. The word of Christ. Well, we need to know what is the word of Christ. What does he mean when he says the word of Christ? He means everything that has been revealed to us through the person of Jesus. Everything that God that was hidden before that God has revealed through the person of Jesus. This is the word of Christ. This is the gospel is the word of Christ. Basically, all, everything through the revealed Son of God for us. Now, for us, that means because we're not contemporaries, we didn't see Jesus, we didn't hear Jesus teach, we didn't hear the word of Christ out of his mouth, but we have the word of Christ, and it's in this book. The revelation of God through his Son, Jesus. And he says, let this word dwell in you. That word dwell means to live in or to be at home. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Scripture is the foundation of everything that we do as believers. Everything that we do as a church. Everything we do in the name of Jesus is built on the word. I want to ask you this morning to ask yourself, is the Bible at home in me? Is God's word at home in my life? Not do I have God's word in my home. Not do I bring God's word with me to church. Where does it live? Not just in your house. I remember those years growing up in church where my Bible, as a, as a child and a teenager, lived in my car. It dwelled in, in, in my car because... The only time I had it was when I went to church. I kept it in the car, took it to church, took it into Bible study, took it to church with me, came back, got in the car, put it down, and it never got picked up again until I got back in the car to go back to church again. Let it dwell in your lives. The word should dwell in our lives as we live in our homes. Think about, because that's what that word means, to be at home, to dwell in. Think about how you live in your house. Where do you spend most of the time that you are awake or asleep? In your house. You dwell in it. It's it's the most important physical place that you have because it's, it's where you dwell. It's your home. Does God's word dwell in my life the way I dwell in my house? And then he doesn't just say let the word of Christ dwell among you. But he adds another word that tells us to to what extent should Christ's word dwell in our lives. And he uses the word richly. That means in abundance. That means overflowing. That, That means like poured out into the glass, coming over the glass, and spilling out all over the table and all over the floor. Scripture is not an accessory to the Christian life. It's a necessity. The word of Christ that's in this book is not an accessory for us. Many of you ladies, you accessorized yourself or your outfit this morning when you came to church. You have what what clothed you, but then you have accessories, right? Sometimes your shoes can be an accessory. You have necklaces, you have earrings, your your, your, the way you might paint your nails or any of those things. Those are, those are accessories. I don't know how many times we've left the house and, 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 and we'll get in the car and Kim will go, oh, I forgot my earrings. And that drives her crazy. But very seldom, and I, I'll say, because I'm trying to be a good husband, do we need to stop and go back? We'll, we'll go back and get your earrings. She goes, no, no, no. No, 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 it's fine. You know why? Because she knows she really doesn't need them. She doesn't have to have them. They're an accessory, something good to have, but they're not essential. How many of us treat God's word like an accessory? I tuck it under my arm and I would go in and I remember being raised in the church when we had Sunday school envelopes and there were check boxes on there, right? And it tells some of y'all shaking your head, you know what it is. And you checked whether you brought your Bible to church and I could boom. I, I, I couldn't always check read daily. Couldn't check that, at least if I wanted to tell the truth. 
But by golly, I was going to check. I brought my Bible to church. But what does that do and what does that mean if it's not dwelling in my life? It's just a box to check off on a piece of paper. When God's word lives richly in our lives, it means that we will never have to find room for it. I want you to think about, again, think about your house. In your house, I've got five people that live in my house. You've got however many people that live in your house. And each family member in your house has a designated space that's made just for them. We dwell in our house. Kim and I have a room. Each of our boys have a room. We have space that's dedicated to them. But what happens when you have guests? Or you have somebody who shows up, maybe it's a holiday, you have guests that come in, or somebody maybe unexpectedly needs a place to stay. They come in, then what do we say? We're going to make room for them, right? So then you have to, they don't dwell in your house, but you're welcoming them into your house. So you got to rearrange a little bit. you got to move things around to make room for them. Those are for the guests who only show up once a year, twice a year, maybe on holidays, things like that. They don't dwell in your house, but you'll make room for them when you need to. God's word should have its own room. It's not the guest that just shows up twice a year and needs a place to stay. If it dwells in our lives, we'll never have to try to rearrange everything else in our life to make room for it. If I, I think about in, in word pictures like with food, because I love food, right? If, if life is a salad, God's word is not the bacon bits. Now that may make you chuckle. But how... how how often do we use scripture like a topping on a salad? This is the lettuce. <laughs> this is not the bacon bits. This is not the sunflower seeds. This is not the, 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 little, the little chunks of cheese that might be on the salad bar. That, it's not that accessory that like, well, if there's room, then I'll put, I'll put that on there. Or if it's available, then I'll put that on there. But I can totally eat my salad without that. Like, do we live our lives on a daily basis treating God's word that way? It's like, well, yeah, if I can add that to it, that's great. But I can totally do without it. Think about Thanksgiving dinner, okay? When, when you're gathered with your family at Christmas or Thanksgiving, you get your plate. There's all this stuff. There's certain things that you're going to make sure go on your plate, right? There's... There's, there's the turkey and there's the dressing and maybe whatever kind of casseroles or meats or things like that. You're going to make sure. And then as you go down the line, like the cranberry sauce might be one of those things that's like, ah, if there's room left on my plate, then I'll throw some of that on there. I feel like, we, I feel like for so many of us, God's word, our Bibles, the scripture is like the cranberry sauce. We'll fill our plates full of everything else. We'll fill it full of our jobs and our families and our, and our kids and our kids' sporting events and our social, social things that we're doing. We'll fill, we'll fill our plate full of all those things. And if there's a little corner left on the side that we can throw a little dab of Jesus into, then yeah, absolutely we'll put that on there because it makes it better. 
That's not what Paul's talking about here. (laughs) This is not the way that we were intended to engage with God's word. It's not the kind of relationship that you or I are supposed to be having with scripture. So let's keep looking. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Let's look, keep looking through the rest of verse 16. You may be saying so far, okay, Eric, what does this have to do with worship? Well, God's word has everything to do with worship. Everything. Because it's our standard. It's our, it's our foundation. So he says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And so Paul in this verse, he ties the dwelling of the word of God into our worship. Like both of those things are kind of tied together in this verse. So in these in, in the second half of the verse, we find a what and a how. What are we to do and then how are we to do it? So there's two things specifically there. In verse 16, he says, with all wisdom, which is a how, what are we to do? Teach and admonish one another. Teaching is part of what we do. Teaching means to give instruction, to give knowledge. In this context, theologically, it's to teach doctrine, to teach what is the, the right beliefs, the truth about God. Teaching and then admonishing. Admonishing is not a word that we use very often in modern common language. You say, well, what does it mean to admonish? Admonishing means to warn or to caution. And it means to rebuke gently. So one of the two things that God's word does is it teaches us what is right and what is true about God, and it also admonishes. It lovingly and gently rebukes us. It warns us. It cautions us against certain things. So Paul says, as believers, when the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, these are things that you should be doing. You should be teaching one another, and you should be admonishing one another. Teaching, giving knowledge, doctrine, but then also like warning each other. Like there's an element of that in even the message that I'm giving you this morning. I'm war- warning you, don't, don't misplace God's word in your life. So we admonish one another, but then he says we do it in a specific way in this verse. Music. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He says Use these things to do your teaching and admonishing. These are instruments. These are tools. We know that we can teach and admonish one another in the preaching of God's word, right? Like You you expect to be taught something when you come here to listen to me. You expect to be taught something when you come to Bible study and you get with your teacher and they've prepared and they've studied and you're talking about God's word. You expect teaching during that time. You expect warning and admonishment from me, from, your, from the scriptures, from your Sunday school teacher. But do you expect those things out of the music that you use? Do you expect these same things out of the music that we sing in church? Paul says you should. The purpose of worship music 
in, in corporate gathering is twofold, and I, and, and I like to describe it this way, that there's a vertical element to our worship when we gather together as a church to sing songs. There's a vertical element, and there's a horizontal element. Okay? Obviously, the vertical element is that music should be an instrument for us to express our praise to God, and we've been talking about that week after week. So that's not a new thing, that we use our music to express our gratitude and give praise to God because he deserves them. But what Paul is introducing here is a horizontal element to our songs. It's also an instrument of teaching and admonishing one another. You should learn things about God through the songs that you sing in worship. Both of these things must be rooted and grounded in the word of Christ. And that's why he says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. When you are together, don't let other things take up more space than the word of God. In our corporate worship, through preaching and through singing. God's word has to fill the majority of the plate. Don't let church be about all of these other things and then there's no room for scripture. There's no room for instruction. There's no room for admonishment. Because we have to worship. How did Jesus say when the Samaritan woman at the well to ask him about worship? He said, the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. That's what scripture provides. This is our truth. And so he says that there is a teaching element incorporated into the songs that we sing. And he mentions three specific kinds of songs. And you may think that these are all synonyms, but they're not. These are not all the same. Obviously, if, if they were all the same, Paul probably would have just used one word. But he uses three different words to describe the different kinds of songs. First, he says you should use the psalms in your teaching. You say, well, what makes the psalms different than all the other psalms that we sing? Because the psalms are divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. Because the psalms come from the Word of God. The Jews in this day the, and the believers, they sang their songbook, their hymnal, or their projection screen, whatever you want to call it, whatever they sang with and sang by, was the book of Psalms. And so the Psalms are different. The Psalms are full of divine revelation. And so when we read the Psalms or we sing the Psalms, we're learning, they inform us about doctrine. There's 150 different Psalms in the book of Psalms. Of those, David wrote 75 of those. Half of them were written by David. 48 of the rest were anonymous. We don't know exactly who the writer of those Psalms were. And then the rest are scattered among different authors like Moses, Solomon. So we have to value the Psalms. Not just because they're, they're, they're written as songs musically that we can sing and worship to. This, it's the word of God. Okay? So the Psalms are set apart from anything else that we sing because they are the divine revelation of God. Then he uses the word hymns. Hymns are a little different. Hymns are different from the Psalms because hymns are not divinely inspired. Okay? There's only one thing that's divinely inspired, and that's what's in this book. 
Hymns may include scripture. Many of them do. But hymns don't have to include scripture. But here's the thing that sets apart hymns, that makes hymns special, and why the church should never let go of them is because they were written by pastors and theologians. The people who wrote many of the hymns that that the church has sung for, for hundreds and hundreds of years have been written by theologians and pastors, not musicians. When you, when you go back and look, if you open up your hymn book and you went back a couple, 100, 200 years and you start looking at some of the really old hymns, the ones that you've known for a long time, many of those you find are written by people, men who were pastors and theologians Hymns are, are, are rich in doctrinal truth. And they were, hymns are written like metrical poetry. You notice how when you're singing a hymn or even a modern song that's written now that sounds like a hymn, there's a metrical element musically to a hymn. And if you're not, if you're not exposed to them a lot, you won't be able to catch it. But maybe some of you that have grown up in the church, you, you know what I'm talking about. There's a, there's a specific... Um, rhythm to a hymn and the way the words are phrased together they're written metrically like that because they were written for the church to sing corporately they weren't written for for soloists they weren't written to be things that we could listen to for enjoyment they were written as as songs to give the corporate church a voice to sing together in unity. And, and some, of the, some of that may be the reason that modern listeners maybe don't like hymns because we think they're so like structured and they're blocky sounding and that sort of thing. Well, they were written like that for a purpose so that everybody could sing them and sing them together. And one of the intentions, especially uh, for men like Martin Luther, part of the, the hymns that like he and the Wesleys and, and those guys, when they wrote their hymns, their primary goal was to teach doctrine. They, were, they, they took this seriously. They wanted the songs that, that the church sang to be educational. So he says there's the psalms and there's hymns and then there's spiritual songs. Spiritual songs is a real general word that, that kind of says everything else. Pretty much any, any good, appropriate, Bible-based song that you might want to sing to God or about God that's not a psalm and it's not a hymn, it's a spiritual song, everything else. Spiritual songs are songs that express faith in a wide variety of things. Songs that express joy, encouragement, motivation. Spiritual songs can sometimes express lament, and sorrow, and struggles, and sadness. But any, any song that's centered around expressing these things, and some spiritual songs are directed toward God, but not all of them. Some of the hymns are, are, are not directed toward God. They're not vertical. You don't sing them directly to God, but there are many songs that we sing to one another. They're horizontal for that purpose of teaching and encouraging and admonishing. And, and, and I want to challenge you just to begin to think about songs that you sing. Songs that you listen to throughout the week on, on the radio. If you listen to the message or you listen to, to Way FM or, or, or whatever, whatever music streaming service that you like. Listen to the songs and, and start learning and asking yourself. 
What kind of worship song is this? Is this a vertical song that when I sing the words, I'm singing them directly to God? Or is this a horizontal song that I'm singing as a, as a teaching, a testimony to other people? What would it be? Music is not only an instrument we use to worship God, but it should be used as a means of teaching each other truth about God. Music in the church that is theologically shallow and appeals only to our emotions is not helpful, nor is it honoring to God or his church. There should be depth to the songs that we sing as a church. There should be theological truth. If, if, if songs, and they're out there, y'all, and we have to pay attention. There are so many songs that are written in the name of Jesus that are theologically shallow. They barely come up over your ankles. But they sure are appealing emotionally. They're written musically to make you feel a certain kind of way, but they don't exalt God's word. And those kind of songs aren't helpful. Or at least they shouldn't be used for worship. We shouldn't call them worship. Music should teach, admonish, and express our gratitude to God. Sometimes, which is what he says at the end of verse 16. Sometimes the most powerful songs that we can sing are songs that just tell God thank you. Thank you for all that you've done. It, it helps us to reflect on that. Um, Martin Luther, the reformer, said this about music. He said, beautiful music is the art of the prophets that can calm the agitations of the soul. It is one of the most significant, magnificent, and delightful presents God has given us. Folks, music is important. It's a creation of God, but he's given it to us for a specific purpose. And we need to make sure that that purpose lines up with this instruction here. So then verse 17, and this is, a, this is a great verse to wrap up everything that we've been talking about about worship. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, Paul says. Whether it's in word or in deed, what you say and what you do with your life, what you do with your hands, let it be in the name of Jesus. One of the biggest mistakes that we make when we think about worship is believing that worship is tied to specific activities. And what we will do is we will think that some activities are spiritual activities, like coming to church, singing songs reading our Bibles, praying, all of these, having our quiet time, all of these things, that those are the spiritual things and that if we were to look at the, everything that we do throughout the course of a day and a week, there's only a few small things that we, would might, that we might pinpoint and say these are spiritual things or these are, these are things through which or with which I will worship. And this is a mistake to think that a few things are spiritual and a lot of things aren't spiritual. Here's a point to conclude today. Any and every appropriate thing we do can be done in the name of Jesus. Now, there's an important word in that statement, appropriate. 
And I put that there on purpose because if we don't put that word there, then, then, then we got a mess. If we say any and everything we do can be done in the name of Jesus, no, that is not true. So don't think that. Don't misunderstand. That's why that word appropriate is in there. Every appropriate thing we do can be done in the name of Jesus. There are things that you and I spend a majority of our day and and nights and times and weeks, things that we do over and over and over that can be done in the name of Jesus appropriately, but we don't do it. We don't do it in the name of Jesus. Why? Because we think they're not spiritual things. We, we've, we've compartmentalized worship to the point where these are the, these are the spiritual things that we do in worship. And then here's all the non-spiritual things that we do. But Paul says, everything you do, whether it's in word or in deed, all of it, do it in the name of Jesus. Let it be focused on him. Um, one, of, one of my favorite books, um, some of you have, have heard me read from this book before, and I talk about it a lot. Um, it's called Every Moment Holy. Um, it's written by a man named Douglas McKelvey. There's a volume two to this book that I've not purchased yet, and then there's a coming of uh, volume three of it. But it's called Every Moment Holy, and this is a book of liturgy. And you say, ooh, that sounds, that sounds very high church, that word. But the word liturgy, in its, in its basic meaning, is a form by which worship is conducted. Okay? So when, when you hear the word liturgy, that means a, that's a form that someone has put together to, to help direct worship. Like whether you know it or not, every week when we come in here, we have a liturgy that we follow. A liturgy is that... Is that thing that we do. We're, we're usually always going to sing a song at the very beginning, right? And then I'm going to get up and I'm going to give you announcements. I'm going to welcome you. And then we're going to pray. And then I'm going to come down. And then we're going to sing two more songs, three more songs, four more songs. It just kind of depends. And then there's going to be the preaching. And then we're going to have the... the there, there's, a, there's an order to things. That's all the word liturgy means. What, what McKelvey has done is he's written liturgies as prayers to direct common, ordinary, everyday things that we do and place them into a liturgy of worship through prayer. And so this is literally a book of prayers based on different things and different life circumstances. I want to read a list of them to you just to give you some examples um, I'm not trying to sell the book, but you, you may be interested in this and want to, want to purchase it. There is in this book a, a liturgy prayer for laundering, for doing laundry. There's a prayer for the paying of bills. There's a pr- liturgy prayer for the enjoyment of a bonfire. There's a prayer for missing someone. There's a liturgy for the morning of a yard sale. And there is a liturgy prayer that he has written for waiting in line. <laughs> Another one that we, that we like in our house is called a liturgy for the ritual of morning coffee. 
And it makes us chuckle to read some of these. But they're powerful. And what McKelvey has done with this is, cre- is given people a tool to be able to see the divine nature that is in the normal things that we would call mundane that are very glorious. In actuality, the glory of God is in all of these things. We just have to stop and pay attention. I want to read one specific one to you, and this one will make you laugh. There's actually two. In in, in the book, this is the only thing that he actually has two different liturgies he's written for. And it's a liturgy for the changing of diapers. There's a changing diapers one and a changing diapers two, which tells me that he has lots of experience changing diapers. But I want to read this one to you. This is the second one in the book. Ah, Lord, what a mess. What a mess we sometimes make of our lives. What a tragic comedy is even our most sincere attempt to merit righteousness on our own. We are no more able to render ourselves holy than is this infant to keep itself unsoiled. I am as desperate upon your grace and your own righteousness, O Christ, to justify and make me clean as this little one is dependent upon me to wash the residue of filth from its skin. Wrapping it again in soft and freshly laundered garments Let me not be frustrated by the constant repetition of this necessary act on behalf of a child. Rather, let the daily doing of this be a reminder to me of the constant cleansing and covering of my own sin that I, helpless as this babe and more often in need, enjoy in the active mercies of Christ. Amen. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it in the name of Jesus.